The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? You just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the John puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Ah! Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we dissect any given movie and then place it up against the Jaws scale to see where it falls. I'll give you the Jaws scale later on when we're ready to do that, but for now, I'm Paul Spitaro and I am joined today by Mr. John Wilson. How are you doing today, John? I am doing well, Paul. Thank you so much for having me tonight. I'm glad you were able to make it. And uh, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, John and I were talking about doing another show that you will hear eventually with some other stellar guests. But timing on that recording wasn't really working out. So then we got to talking and I said, hey, is there a movie you want to cover one-on-one? And I believe you gave me two choices. Uh, but we settled in on A Nightmare on Elm Street, the 1984 original, which has spawned not only a remake, but many, many sequels. Uh, I don't think we're going to talk too much about its progeny, but we will go into this movie in particular. And I'll start off by saying, why did you pick this one, John? Well, this has always been one of my favorite films. Um, Back when I was a kid, I used to watch it all the time. Uh, My brother and I had a copy of it on a VHS tape. We had recorded this and the second one back to back. And I have no idea how many times we watched that video so many times. And uh, whenever my daughter was old enough to, um, I thought, you know, emotionally handle it, I showed it to her. This was my son's first time to watch it with us. And so, uh, yeah, it's always been one of my favorites. And interestingly enough, this particular didn't quite hold up as well in my mind as it had previously but uh, we can can talk more as we go okay yeah uh i do find that there's a different mindset when you're watching a show specific or a movie specifically to dissect it and talk about it as opposed to just sitting back in your armchair to enjoy it because Mm -hmm. you start becoming by by your very nature i mean i think by our very nature people who were uh you know, in the same mindset as us hobby-wise, I think we are nitpickers to begin with. But I do think that there's an ability, at least for me, and I think for a lot of us, to lose ourselves in the entertainment of a movie. But once you put on that critic's hat, it forces you to go back to that nitpicking a little bit. 
Yeah, that's probably part of it. And also my um, my daughter was really enjoying taking the piss out of the film as we were going along. So <laughs> um, There's also a tendency for the young to poo-poo what we found scary when we were young. Right. I find it very disconcerting. When I was a kid, and we haven't talked about it on this particular show yet, and maybe we will one day, so I won't give too much of my uh, thought process on it. But when I was a kid, I saw The Exorcist, and it scared me like nothing I've ever seen before. And then a couple of years later, my my niece and nephew watched it, and they, they said, oh, yeah, we watched it. We were laughing as it was going on, and it just really, I don't know, it disturbed me that they weren't scared by it the way I was. Right. And uh, I I see that happening here, too. Now, how old are your kids now? Uh, Lily is 15 and Keenan is 8. Okay, so 8 years old you feel, and and believe me, I'm not passing judgment in any way, but 8 years old you feel is okay for him to watch it? No fear. I think every kid is different. Um, Certainly, I was younger when I was watching it, and um, I was just kind of, you know, seeing how he reacts to stuff. Lily and I have been watching The Walking Dead all this year. We've been watching, you know, a lot of episodes trying to get from the beginning rewatched and caught up on that series. And he's seen a lot of that along the way. So, like, if you can watch all the zombie hacking on The Walking Dead, the first time on Elm Street is not going to bother you. There's this, this strange thought that I'm having, and I'm, and I'm just kind of contemplating the whole idea of a kid watching it. I could see watching The Walking Dead as a kid and thinking, yeah, that's not real. That could never happen. And then watching A Nightmare on Elm Street and like going to bed at night and being scared, <laughs> you know, like now I can't go to sleep. Right. You know, so I guess, you know, it depends on the kid, obviously. Like you said, every kid's a little different for how they're going to be age appropriate for it. Um yeah, I know some kids who you could show them anything and they won't be scared at all. And I know, you know, other kids who are scared by their own shadow. I don't currently have anybody in my circle that's a horror movie fan. So I've kind of fallen out of the horror movie genre. My, my son and I were watching The Walking Dead, but even that I've kind of lost interest in as time has gone by. So uh, for me, this is a genre that I used to be into, but I'm no longer really. My brother, whenever he was alive, was a huge horror fan, and uh, he he would get really into the psychology of it, and, and he and I had a long conversation about the second Nightmare on Elm Street, because there's a lot of, in the horror genre historically, there's a lot of gay and queer coding, and the second Nightmare on Elm Street, it's almost not even subtext coding, it's almost like blatantly on the screen, uh, just a lot of, you know, commentary and metaphor for queer and uh, you know alternative sexuality and stuff so or spectrum sexuality whatever you know term you want to use to cover all the different stuff that um is out there and so he loved the horror genre and he and i would watch a lot of things he got me into things like the hellraiser series and stuff like that um so it's always one of the things i've enjoyed um and yeah this movie kind of emblemizes a lot of what I like about classic slasher stuff. Mm-hmm. See, the one thing I have, uh, well, one, one advantage, and there's not too many advantages to this, but one advantage of being older than most of the people who I have on the show is a lot of the movies that we cover, I had the pleasure of seeing it in the theater on the big screen when it was first released. Oh, uh, was this one too? Yes. Awesome. Yeah, I had seen this, and, and if I recall, at the time I really didn't know too much about it. I knew it was a horror movie. Uh, and I knew, you know, obviously just from the title that it had something to do with nightmares, but really didn't know what to expect when I went into it. Um, 
looking at it now, and I, I've seen it over the years, but it's not, it hasn't been like on my perpetual viewing list. So I would say watching it for this show is probably maybe the fourth time I've seen it ever. Okay. And, uh, you know, some of it, as far as the production values, you know, you could see, you know, it's aged a little bit and is, uh, you know, they, I think they cover up some of the lack of ability to do certain things with darkness mm-hmm. as far as the special effects go. Uh, you know, they, they couldn't CGI things back then like they can now, obviously. And, you know, some of the prosthetics weren't the greatest in the world. So you dim the screen a little bit and it creates a little bit mood, of moodiness and you don't notice the, the flaws. And some of that is undone now by the, by the miracles of HD. Yes, that is true. Because we can see through some of that darkness now and actually see some of the lighting more clearly now. It actually, my memory of this is that Freddy's face is hardly ever that visible, but you can really see him in this. And I guess it's the HD or just I had a really crap quality, you know, cut growing up or something. But but yeah. Well, if you think about, you know, you said you had a VHS tape that apparently you recorded it on. It wasn't even the pre-recorded VHS tape. Right. You you probably got it off HBO or something, which, you know, that's that's when it's broadcast on HBO, it's fine. But you're going to take a step down, putting it on a VHS tape. And then every time you play it, you're going to lose just a little bit of the quality on it, too. So, you know, you weren't watching it on the optimum situation that you can now. Getting getting into the movie a little, we should uh, go over the plot for anybody listening who doesn't know it. 15-year-old Tina Gray is stalked through a boiler room and attacked by a disfigured man wearing a blade-fixed glove. She awakens from the nightmare, but her mother points out four mysterious slashes in her nightgown. The following morning, Tina is consoled by her best friend, Nancy Thompson, and her boyfriend, Glenn Lance. Later, Nancy and Glenn sleep at Tina's following her mother's out-of-town departure. The sleepover is interrupted by Tina's boyfriend, Rod Lane. Falling asleep, Tina sees the man and runs. Awakened by Tina's thrashing, Rod witnesses her being fatally slashed by an unseen force. He flees as Nancy and Glenn find Tina, mistakenly blaming Rod. Nancy tells her father, Lieutenant Don Thompson, of Tina's death. The next day, Rod is arrested by Don, despite his pleas of innocence. At school, Nancy falls asleep in class and finds the man, calling himself Freddy Krueger, chasing her in the boiler room. Nancy burns her arm on a pipe and then awakens. She notices the burn mark on her arm and is concerned. At home, Nancy falls asleep in the bathtub and nearly gets drowned by Freddy. Nancy goes to Rod, who tells her what happened to Tina, and Nancy believes Freddy is responsible for Tina's death. Nancy has Glenn watch over her as she falls asleep. She tries to find Freddy and sees him preparing to kill Rod. He turns his attention on her. She runs and wakes up when her alarm clock goes off. Nancy and Glenn go to jail and discover Rod dead in his cell in an apparent suicide. At Rod's funeral, Nancy's parents become worried when she describes the man in her dreams. Her mother, Marge, takes her to a dream clinic. In her dream, Nancy is attacked again and grabs Freddy's hat. But the staff wakes her up. She has a gash in her arm and Freddy's hat in her possession. At home, Marge bars the windows and begins drinking heavily. She tells Nancy that Freddy was a child murderer released on a technicality. In a form of vigilante justice, the parents in the neighborhood burned him alive. 
Realizing that Freddy desires revenge, Nancy convinces Gwen to help her. She plans to take Freddy into the real world and sets up booby traps in her house. Concerned over her influence, Gwen's parents prevent the two from meeting. Gwen falls asleep at their appointed hour. Freddy kills him and releases his blood in a large fountain in his room, which is witnessed by Gwen's mother. Alone, Nancy puts Marge to bed and asks Don, who is across the street, to break into the house in 20 minutes. In her sleep, she locates Freddy at the last second and pulls him out of the dream. In the real world, Nancy runs from Freddy, who trips on the booby traps. She lights him on fire, locks him in the basement, and rushes to the door to help. The police arrive, and they realize Freddy has escaped the basement. In Marge's bedroom, they see a still-burning Freddy smother her. After Don puts out the fire, Freddy and Marge have vanished. Despite her father's words, Nancy believes she is still in danger. Freddy attacks Nancy once again. Realizing he is powered by his victim's fear, she calmly turns her back on him, reducing him to nothingness. She steps outside into a bright morning where all of her friends and mother are still alive. She gets into Glenn's car to go to school when the top comes down and suddenly locks them in. As the car is driven uncontrollably down the street, Marge is grabbed through the window of the front door by Freddy's gloved hand and dragged through to her apparent death. The end. Oof. There's a lot going on here. And I don't know, maybe you can clarify for me because I was always a little confused by this as to whether the rules are portrayed inconsistently or if we're just not really supposed to know the rules and it's supposed to be kind of up to us. You know, the ending really just kind of throws that monkey wrench into the works. It really does. And I had the exact same thought, actually, when I was watching it this time, is I remembered the rules. And I remember that the second one kind of throws the rules out the window. But other than that, you know, three, four, and five, they follow the rules pretty well. And this one, you know, once you get to the final act, it really starts blurring. And, you know, she even says at the end, no, 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 this entire thing is a dream. And I want you to let me go and I want all my friends back. And so I'm like, wait a second. Is it all a dream? Is this whole thing just something that she's been dreaming? Or are they just playing with the storytelling? Or or is it that Freddie is playing with her and letting her think she has control, but she doesn't? Right. You know, I don't know how much of that is meant to be up to the viewer to decide or how much of it Wes Craven just kind of like fumbled the ball a little. And probably part of it is that he didn't know he was going to get a whole bunch of sequels and he didn't even really necessarily have a lot to do with all of the sequels. Um, So he was just trying to tell a story that was scary. So I don't know, maybe he didn't feel like everything had to be absolutely clear. It's hard to know what's going on with someone's mind. And, and I have I have mixed feelings about that, and I think I've talked about it on, on several occasions. I don't mind when they leave something ambiguous and say, hey, you know, you have to kind of decide, you know, what you think is going on there. But there are times where I think the director, writer, whoever, take it a little too far to the point where I start to feel it's a cop-out. I don't, I don't think I feel that way about this one. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think, the, you know, the ending, she takes control and you think, okay, then it's over. But then the mom gets pulled through the window at the end. And then you got to start saying, well, what was going on here? You know, is she still in a dream? Is this really happening? Is not, you know, what what have I seen so far? 
I'm kind of okay with that being up to the viewer to decide. Right. Whenever at the end of the film, whenever she turns his back on him and he falls into sparkles on her back and she opens the door, if they had gone into some normal closing scene and wrapped up the plot and then maybe had some small zinger at the ending to tease that he's not really dead, that would have been very similar to the tack they take in later films. And that would have certainly have been more clear in the storytelling. But she walks out of her mom's bedroom and her mom is alive and, oh, I'm not going to drink anymore. And, oh, you look so amazing. And, oh, your friends are here. <laughs> it's so happy. And none of that could possibly be real. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, the, mom oh, was, the mom was a wreck before that. So, yeah, I think you're onto something there. You know what I think? You know what just popped into my head? If we take this as a standalone film, that walking out and getting all of her friends back could be how Freddie finally gets Nancy. He wins in the end by tricking her into thinking she's safe and he gets her. It doesn't really work if you take the sequels into account because Nancy survives this film. Mm -hmm. But if you look at this film as a creation on its own, it all works if the end is still a dream and she dies. Yeah, I don't think that they really had thought out when they made this movie. I don't think they had thought out how can we make sequels to it. Right. I, I think in 1984 when this came out, that wasn't quite as, you know, as on the forefront of everybody's mind as it is now. But even setting aside the very, very end, a little bit earlier, it's still ambiguous. Never, she's like trying to call for help and she pulls the phone out of the wall. Right. And, and she's, she's interacting with the neighbors. While well, at least she's theoretically, she's awake. Yeah, she's theoretically awake, theoretically interacting with the neighbors and calling them and talking to them on the phone. But at the same time, Freddie is calling her, you know, prank calls on the phone at the same time. So it's weird. Now, I, I said we weren't going to get too much into the sequels, but obviously you're familiar with them, certainly more so than I am. Uh, did they ever explain how Freddie gets control over the dream nightmare scape? Or is that just kind of always left up to, you know, yeah, he did it and that's it? He, the dream specifically, no. The idea that's presented is that he um, is a child of evil. Um, they, they, they do some stuff with the mythos that Fred Krueger's mom was raped by a hundred insane criminals and so Fred Krueger's very birth was spawned from evil. And so he did evil things. And when he died, his evil survived. Um, how that gives him power over the dream world? Well, I don't know. <laughs> was, was, his mother was a nun, wasn't she? Yeah, she was a nun. Okay, so I do have some vague recollection of the sequels. Uh, I, I always found that raped by a hundred insane criminals to, to spawn Freddy kind of amusing because it only takes one. Right. That is true. That is true. You know, <laughs> no matter how many she was raped by, there was only one who actually impregnated her. Right, right. Unless there's something strange going on that biology does not under, does, does not make clear for me at this time. <laughs> it's a movie. Anything's possible. So now casting-wise, just going into this a little bit, uh, as far as I know, this was Heather Langenkamp's first significant role. Uh, and... and one of not all that many, to be honest. I don't think she's, she, you know, she's had a career, but I don't think it's been, you know, she hasn't been a leading lady in very much. 
Right. I, to be honest, I've only seen her in her three Nightmare on Street appearances. That's the yeah. only place I remember seeing her. Interestingly, looking at her uh, Wikipedia page, she had a part, at least, in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. I don't know what part she played in it, but she was wow. in it. I will have to go back and watch that and see who Moto is. Because I, I, I've got the uh, MDIB page up right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, she's been in a lot of random stuff. And I'm sure, you know, in, in small parts. But I, I think she was interestingly cast in this movie. First of all, she was apparently about 20 when the movie was made, but she's playing a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. And then it was there was the ironic line when she looks in the mirror and she says, oh my God, I look like I'm 20. Um, <laughs> but she did not have, you know, that the, the sex pot leading lady look that I think they often would go to in the slasher films. She mm-hmm. was, you know, not that she wasn't a pretty girl, but she looked more like just, you know, your average all-American girl. Right. And I think that was an interesting casting choice, especially since there is a little bit of, and it's almost kind of disturbing because she's supposed to be 15 in the movie, but there is a little bit of a, you know, the, the poster art shows her in bed apparently looks like she's naked under the covers. Mm-hmm. And then there's the bathtub scene. So I do think there's a little bit of an attempt to, at titillation there. Uh, and which... the, the um, change into pajamas underwear scene. Mm-hmm. So, you but know, she... I, I think it's a little inappropriate considering she was supposed to be 15. But that's aside from the point. I just think, like I said, if you're going to do that, it's a, she's a little bit of a strange casting choice because she isn't that bombshell. And she rebuffs all sexual advances from from Johnny Depp's character, Glenn, um, not to be confused with the sad character from The Walking Dead. Um, <laughs> so it's like she's almost desexualized, except for those couple of titillating things, which really aren't that titillating. No, Honestly, as a kid, as, as a kid, I never really thought much about the claw in the bathtub. Um, I did find the topless scene a little bit interesting, but I found the one in the third movie a lot more interesting for obvious reasons. Um, and yeah, she's not really very, and she's playing next to the Tina actress who is more of your classic, sexy, pretty type of uh, actress. Yes. Yes. I would agree with that. She, uh, I, I was not enamored with her acting in this movie as I was watching it yesterday. Uh, I thought she was a little wooden in her delivery, which I think often happens with younger actors and actresses. I think they grow into their ability to to play parts. Uh, you know, she did at times feel like she was just reading her lines. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious what you thought as far as that goes. Yeah, she's not a great actress in this. Um, I think everybody in the film, even um, the guy who plays Rod. Jesu Garcia, it's JSU, Jesu Garcia. Um, even his kind of over the top punk acting is at least more character y and emotional than hers is. Right. Uh, when she's like, We're here for Tina now, not ourselves. You just like kind of want to slap her a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> the only actor that I knew going into this was John Saxon, who I knew from Enter the Dragon. Okay, the dad, yeah. And, and of course, uh, Johnny Depp. Well, Johnny Depp, this was, I believe this was... Oh, his, when you uh, went into this from 1984. Yeah. I think yeah, this yeah, was this, his introduction. This, like, 
And from what I read on it, uh, the reason he got the part was because Wes Craven's daughter thought he was dreamy. He is pretty dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this, I mean, this was his, I, I guess, his, his world premiere coming out in this one. I'm looking uh, at his list. This is the very first thing listed. And then was he uh, 21 Jump Street? Was that yeah, his? that was three years later. Is when he, I think that was his coming out role. Um, That's when he became famous. Yeah, he was in Platoon. I don't know that movie well enough to remember what he played. Um, but I'm pretty sure that 21 Jump Street is where Johnny Depp became a household name. And then Edward Scissorhands was his first big film after that. Edward Scissorhands and then uh, Donnie Brasco, I think. Right? What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Oh, okay. That one I never saw. He was in things like Benny and June and Don Juan DeMarco. He did Ed Wood. Well, by the time he made Ed Wood, he was pretty much a household name, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, go, just going through the list, mentioning things he's been in. Um, and so as yeah, we this do this, we first... have a new Pirates movie that just opened. Oh, yeah, which I haven't seen yet. But I think I've only seen the first three Pirate films once a long time ago. I saw the first. I thought it was enjoyable. I've watched the other sequels all at home. I've never seen any of them in the big screen. Uh, but I, I found them to be various levels of uh, incoherent Mm-hmm. That's uh, what my memory is too. But we're not reviewing any of those today, so we'll we'll go back to these people. Uh, so we had John John Saxon. The mom was Ronnie Blakely. Uh, she was apparently a singer slash actress. She is kind of a terrible person throughout the movie. Um, I did not like her. I, I not necessarily is her acting. I'm trying to figure out how much is her acting and how much is just the character she was portraying. Um, See, I saw her as a tortured soul. And I I thought the acting actually brought that along a little bit. Not, you know, it's not a tremendous acting performance, but I thought it was okay. Uh, I thought, you know, for whatever reason, they did what they did to Freddy Krueger because he got away with the murders that he committed. And... She was tortured by it ever since, and that's what brought on the alcoholism and everything else. And it also, you know, that part where she's, you know, mommy killed him for you, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, she's trying to justify her own behavior, and I, I thought there was a little bit of a depth to her performance. Although, again, I, I don't disagree with you that she was not likable. Yeah, you're right. It's probably the acting did a good job of portraying an unlikable person. Um, she did have some moments, uh, like you said, and taking taking Nancy to get help, whereas the dad's just like, you know, lock her up, keep her home where she's safe, and mom's like, no, I'm going to do something better, I'm going to get her some help. Um, I think it's funny they took her to a sleep research center, because those are really easy to get into on a moment's notice. <laughs> and and there she's treated by Roger Rabbit. Oh, is that the actor who does Roger Rabbit's voice? I believe it is. Isn't that Charles Fleischer? Probably. Yes, it is Charles Fleischer. Look at that. Oh, that's funny. I'm glad to pull that one out. So then we have the, besides Johnny Depp, the other breakout star in this movie is Robert Englund as Freddy. Right. And uh, he, I think he only has maybe seven minutes of screen time in this movie. It's not a lot. And it's one of those interesting things about these slasher films is the key roles are always hardly in the film. Running out for like, you know, Jason isn't in the film, Friday the 13th films very much. 
Michael Myers is not in Halloween very much, except when you're looking through his eyes. You know, they only get to be on the screen for a little bit of time. Everyone else is just reacting to them. I think it's kind of important that they do it that way, though, because I think if you give them too much screen time, you desensitize the audience to them. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's very important how they tell the stories. You know, you, you need to build up, especially, and again, I, as we already said, I don't think they did this with the idea of making sequels. But if you go too far with showing him, even if, you know, you if you're making a one and done, I think you could start off slowly and build up to it and eventually show him much more as the movie goes on. But if you're planning on coming back for a part two or part three or however far you want to go with it, probably the more judicious you are on giving him screen time, the better. Mm-hmm. He's done some voice work. It looks like he comes on and does um, spooky roles on TV shows a lot. He was even in a Babylon 5 episode. I need to see that. Um, he was on uh, the original show V. Right. And I think that predates this. I think I actually knew who he was from that. He yes, played, I think that's... He played kind of a likable alien in that. He he was going against the you know, the ones who were trying to, to uh, take over the Earth. Right. It's been a long time since I've seen that, but yeah. Okay, according that. to this, he was a resistance fighter in the 1983 miniseries V, as well as the 1984 sequel V, The Final Battle, and V, The Series. Uh, so, yeah, that does predate, at least his initial appearance predates this movie. But um, but he portrays Freddy, of course, through all of the Fred Krueger films, except for the last one they did, which was the remake. And that's where they brought in, um, I forget his name, but he was Rorschach on The Watchmen, and he's done some other great things. Yes, uh... I, I, I know who you're talking about, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head either. But he he, he does his, – his portrayal of the role in this is interesting because they use the word boogeyman in the script, and that really is kind of how he's portrayed. He's scary, and he's deadly, but he's also kind of silly. Not nearly as over-the-top, outrightly silly as he gets in the later films. I didn't remember him being silly much at all in this, though, and I was surprised at how much, like, he cuts his fingers off for a gag. He's always right. cackling and laughing. And he's like, hey, look at this. And he slices open his belly just to say, ooh, this is kind of weird, you know? <laughs> and it's 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 interesting because it's not nearly as outright menacing as I remembered him being. I guess it, it may depend on the initial shock value, too. Right. Uh, just as a, by the way, uh, Jack Earl Haley was the other actor. That's right. Jack Earl Haley. Yeah, I remember him. Um, and if I recall right, he does do an outright menacing Fred Krueger. I've never uh, seen that remake, so I couldn't say... It does a lot more with the background story. It does a lot more with the um, nature of who Fred Krueger was before he was killed. Um, it's never said in this, but it's kind of implied that Fred Krueger would molest the children before he killed them. You well, can that was something that. I read about this, that that was originally the story in this, and then they just changed it to child killer because they thought the child molester was a little... Going, going, you know, they, they said thought that was just a bridge too far. And uh, I can see that for 1984. They put that back into the story for the 2000 whatever remake. Right. I don't know. 
I don't know if that added to it in any way. Like, again, I didn't see the remake, so I can't comment on it. But from everything I've heard, it was kind of uh, unnecessary. Excuse me, unnecessary. Oh, the remake? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the word that often gets used with remakes. I enjoyed it when I watched it. Okay. Well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if, you know, I would certainly hope that the special effects were ramped up because I would think that would be the one area <laughs> that you could do better. Yeah, know, yeah. With the, whatever, 30 years that passed in between the two. Uh, I'd like to talk about, for a couple of minutes, the score. And I was okay. paying a little bit of attention to that yesterday. I, I'm not... Some, some of the people who are on the Two True Freaks Network are big movie score people. I don't know where you fall on that. It's not something that I think about a lot when I'm watching movies, but I did happen to notice a few cues from this one. Um, of course, there's the classic haunting single high-pitched note at a time. Do, 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 do. You know, that's just sort of like, you know, cue that they do a lot of times whenever they want to be sort of mysterious. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the a lot of the running from Fred music is hard synthesizer stuff. Right. And there was even one cue that felt Phantom of the Opera-ish. It was just like, dun 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 you know. And, and I, if it had done a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, that would have been the only thing it was missing to make it <laughs> right out of Phantom of the Opera. Um, but it gets, the music gets loud whenever they're being chased around. And um, and yeah, what were, what were some of your thoughts on it? I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think the, well, I'm not just going to throw in that uh, Robert Englund also played the Phantom of the Opera at one time. But, uh, so it works. Yeah, but I think that what you what you what you're uh, referring to was probably more effective in the theater because it would surround you and envelop you more than coming out of your TV set. Right. And it, it created a frenetic tone as they were running, and it just kind of added to the tenseness of the scenes. So I think it was very effective as far as that goes. And, and in a different way, you know, you, you pointed to the, the slow one note at a time music, which is nice for building suspense. Building the tension, yeah. But when you're just getting into do... a dream, like like the opening scene, whenever Tina's in the bedroom and you're not quite sure what's happening, turns out she's just started that dream sequence. Um, it's just, you know, it builds that tension. Right. Well, the, and I think the, the pivotal uh, or the key example of that would be the uh, soundtrack in Halloween mm. the way John Carpenter played the music in that uh, but I think this is effective in this movie it's not something that I could, could ever find myself uh, like driving in my car and putting hey let me put on the Nightmare on Elm Street soundtrack I don't think that's ever <laughs> happening No. Nope. but as far as uh, being complimentary to what's going on on the screen I think it was pretty effective yeah definitely and you and, know, and, and, and you okay. want something whenever there's a lot of action, a lot of running, you want something that's a bit more intense and and like you said, frenetic. Uh, it's, it's it's a good it plays the both sides of that coin really well. I think so as well. What would you do? You know about the uh, dollars and cents on this one? Oh, the the budget budget and box office. Um, I didn't look it up, but I can if you don't. Well, no, I have it in front of me. I'm just okay. Yeah, go ahead. Tell me the numbers. I, I do like to. Well, I like to ask if you don't know already. If you want, if you'd like to guess at it, how much it costs to make this movie, and what did it gross? Uh, I'm terrible at this, um, which makes it even more fun. I imagine it's probably pretty low budget, but these are 1980s dollars. Yes. Um, I'm gonna say 70 million. Okay, 
and and I probably would have guessed something around the same, thinking, oh, 70 million's low budget. 70 million was big budget in the 1980s. This movie was made at a budget of 1.8 million dollars. Damn, Gina, two million bucks to make this movie. Wow, unreal, right? Yeah, no wonder that arm stretching thing looked so terrible. <laughs> oh, it, so, it's terrible because it's the first thing you see of Freddy. The very first thing you see of Freddy walking on the screen is him doing that arm stretch out. You're like, why is he doing the arm stretch out? Because he doesn't want to walk over to the wall to do his little, you know, scrapey thing that he does. And then the next shot of him, he's running after the girl with his arms stretched out, just like normally stretched out. It just doesn't, you know, it's it's not the best way to first introduce your villain. But anyways, okay, so it cost one point eight to to make. So now, and I'll I'll give you a little bit of background on that because I read up on it, not because I know this, uh, or not because I knew it. At least now I know it. Uh, it made just about its budget back in the first weekend when it was only playing on one hundred sixty five screens. So they said, "Hey, we got a hit here. Uh, what do you think the total domestic gross was?" Um. If it made back its budget the first weekend, and movies ran in theaters a lot longer then, but it probably depreciated pretty quickly, I'm going to say 10. Okay. So I, I was I was afraid you were going to go still out there and say like 50 or 60, but it made, uh, let me just give the actual number, 25.5. So this was considered a big, big hit at the time. Yeah. I mean, that's, a fact, that's over a factor of 10 <laughs> yes, <laughs> more than exactly. you spent on the movie. That's... That's pretty insane. I mean, yeah. yeah when, well, they sp- when they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars nowadays on movies, you think how many hundreds of thousands we're going to make that many billions? That's that's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's almost hard to wrap your your head around the dollars then as compared to the dollars now when you when when it's considered to be a mega hit if it makes a billion. And even then, this movies that have made a billion dollars for the Marvel Studios, where they were like, "Yeah, we were a little disappointed with what it made." <laughs> That's it. It just makes me just scratch my head. But uh, let's see. Any 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 kind of themes in this or messages that you you know you, you're a bigger fan of it than I. Anything that you think is worth pointing out in there? Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Um, that was my Yoda impression. Um, <laughs> Yoda on Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, it's from that. You've you've seen the Seagulls music video, right? That Yoda I sings? I don't think I have. Oh, my gosh, Paul. I had to send you this link. Okay. So, listeners, um, do a search for Seagulls. Stop it now. It's, uh, it's from the bad lip reading people, and you'll be amused. Um, okay. So, themes. So it's, but it's, it's if... Uh... Frank Oz had played Freddy Krueger, I guess. Right. I'm going to just tell you what I'm thinking, and then you could take it from there, because I, I kind of hate put you put you on the spot there. But I thought that uh, what's called Wes Craven. I thought it was interesting that he kind of hit something that had never been done before, to my knowledge. And I was trying to think of other movies where they really hit on this. The, you know, the whole really somebody controlling the dreams and coming out and killing people or whatever. But although it hadn't been done, it just seems so fundamental. This the you know the stuff that nightmares are made of, you know, mm-hmm. and like you said, the boogeyman. So I think it was like brilliant in its simplicity is the way I come 
come at it. I just think you know he he came up with a, with a story here that I think, you know, once you start thinking about, it, you say, well, that's that's not so, uh, you know, that's not so far afield. That's that's kind of you know standard nightmares, and yet he did something that nobody else had done to that point. So I give him a lot of credit. And again, like I said, it's it's brilliant in its simplicity in my mind. Yeah, because you have lines like "It's only a dream; it isn't real," which are you know things we grow up learning to tell ourselves when we wake up from a bad dream and now that no longer works for these kids um or even from the adult perspective you know you, if your kids are upset about something you, you know you, your thought first thought is go to sleep and it'll you know it'll be better in the morning and this is just the opposite you go to sleep you're gonna get killed right and it's all it's all a revenge play for him um this is definitely the parents and what they did, coming back and biting them on the asses through their kids. Uh, it's, it's one of the, con- the story concepts as you go through the movies is that he comes to the children of the Elm Street parents. You know, that, that neighborhood of parents. Um, now, would it have seemed more poignant if he had not been a child killer slash molester? If he had been somehow <laughs> some sort of innocent that somehow was you know, wronged by these parents and was coming back for revenge, would that add a level of poignancy to the movie? Or would it just take away from the horror aspect somehow because now they deserve it? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it would have made him more sympathetic. And I don't know that you did that a whole lot in these early slasher films, making your making your villain sympathetic. Um that's definitely a, a postmodern kind of kind of storytelling move. So yeah, I think it, it would change what I think about the movie as a whole. Probably not a whole lot. Would it change what I think about the mythos and like how the story is structured and everything? Yeah, it would. It would. When I think about you know the story of the movies rather than the this movie itself, because um, when it comes right down to it, a lot of times these slasher films they don't necessarily need a lot of backstory. You give them some backstory so that your film doesn't fall apart. Um, but at the end of the day, you're you're seeing a Nightmare on Elm Street movie because somebody comes out of dreams and kills people, not because of where that person came from. Same with, you know, the Friday the 13th movies and the Halloween movies and stuff like that. It's yeah. terrible. It's terrible having Michael Myers' sister, what he did to her. But that's not really why those movies are happening. Right. And I, I've come to start examining villains a little bit more closely as I'm watching these movies Mm -hmm. Uh, movies or reading comic books or watching TV shows just in general and I'm finding that they fit into categories you know you have the megalomaniac you have the just psycho you have the sociopath uh, which I guess Freddy would fall in more into the kind of the combination psycho and sociopath level right Uh, but you know you have the uh, you know someone who just feels the world will be better with them ruling it you have the uh, the joker from the dark knight you know some people just want to see the world burn uh and then you have you know the uh, you know the, like the magnetos in the world where you know they they think if you're writing their story they're the hero you know right. they don't consider themselves to be the villain and uh a lot of the stories that i've been reading more recently i would say in the last 20 years or so are uh, reading or, or watching are trying to flesh out these villains more and give them more of a motivation and a backstory. Uh, this predates that. 
you know, this, this was, he's a psycho for the sake of being a psycho and that's it. But when you start looking at it from the point of view, okay, these parents burned him to death, theoretically, because somehow he survived. Like you said, the evil survives. Uh, but the parents burned him to death that they weren't just satisfied with taking him off the streets or, you know, even just killing him. Apparently they felt they had to torture him for what he did. And yeah, well, and I actually, I, I noticed more of the backstory than I had before. Like he went to trial. They tried the system and the system failed them. He was off on a technicality of some sort and right. he was free. So then they went into lynch mob mode and, mode and hunted him down, which again is also something that like, I see that happening in a small suburb in the 70s or 80s a lot more easily than I see it happening now. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree. But then I think the issue, if you're going to try and break it down, and I'm not sure this is meant to be looked at this closely, but the issue starts to become, okay, so they've, they've you know, tracked him down, they have him, what do you do with him? You know, wouldn't it be more humane at that point to just put a bullet in his head? Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, torching him to death. You know? Yeah, because of all the ways I might want to go, getting burned alive is definitely low, low on the list. Yeah, no, there's, you know, much lower than the go to sleep and not wake up. Right. I like that that's, one. That's number one on my list. Um, not, that, not that I have a list. Oh, I do. <laughs> Guillotine is high up there. Um, but not being burned. Yeah, why didn't they? I mean, they said they had him in an old boiler room. And we've seen the boiler room. It's such a maze and everything. Maybe they didn't think they could actually go in and get him without being hurt or killed in the process. Um, but if they could just torch the place from the outside, that's easy. One might be, say, it would be interesting to see that. Did you know? Did they have a choice? Did they choose to torture him? Or was it you know what they felt was the only way to take him out? One might say it's a cowardly move just because, you know you've trapped him in a cage and now you're burning the cage rather than, you know, taking care of him directly. Um, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then you have the mob mentality. So they, they, they know he's inside. So they're surrounding the building. What discussion do you have at that point? And they just happen to have brought gasoline with them. <laughs> Damn. Nobody brought matches. <laughs> or, or did Herb have that in the back of his truck? But if you carry gasoline around the back of your truck, that's dangerous. It smells the whole time. So I don't know. So sure that that's, I, I'm, you know, the impression I got from when she tells the story, and that's the only time when you really hear the backstory. But the impression I got was this was a choice they made. This was, you know, they they could have taken him out in various ways, but they chose to burn him to death. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that was my impression walking away from it. Yeah, and it could be some sadistic revenge tactic on their part. Yeah, and you know what I mean? Can, I can almost understand where. You know, and let's go to the original story that he was a child molester, that he was molesting these children and then killing him, killing them. Uh, I can almost understand where that would make you crazy to the point where where just taking him out wouldn't be good enough, that you you need to see him suffer somehow. But that sure backfired on them. Oh, so here's some thoughts I'm just having randomly here. Okay, so Nancy's mom had a direct hand in killing him. So... Why was Nancy's mom so directly involved in the lynch mob? And is it possible that some of these kids were kidnapped and molested and then later found alive? And 
maybe we're able to therapy that out of their memories or something. And, and what if Nancy was one of those kids? I know that's kind of really extrapolating a bit too far, but maybe what isn't too far is what if being involved in this lynch mob is why she and the police officer husband are divorced now? Oh, I definitely got that impression. I mean, it's unstated. Uh-huh. But I got the impression that what went on put too much of a stress stress on their marriage, and that's why they're not together anymore. I don't know. Again, that that could be just me reading into it too far, but that was the impression I walked away with. Interesting. So, but, Maybe, you know, yeah. it, it it is interesting that you know why would she be so directly involved? And you know, not to to put too fine an edge on it, but it does sound like you 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 could be onto something. Like you know. For for the for all these parents to be so involved, it, it had to be very personal for them. She's one who even kept his finger knives. Yes. Yes, I forgot that plot point, too. That's true. And why would you do that? <laughs> I mean, if you're going to keep a sadistic trophy, shouldn't somebody who, like, had a stake in this business have the sadistic trophy? I don't know. Isn't that just evidence of the murder that you committed, too? Oh, yeah. Maybe hiding that is what she did, and... So that no one would get suspicious. So that no one else could get blamed. Or I don't know. So many questions now. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, you know, this is another one of the stories that we're going over here that I'm not sure it's meant for you to delve this deeply into it. Uh, but the fact that you can, I, do, I think, speaks well for the movie. Right. You know, it's, it's somewhat thought-provoking. And it's not in that way that I said I don't like where the, you know, where it's a cop-out, where the writer, director, producer, you know, leaves it to the audience to, to say, you know, what happened. Uh, my prime example of the one that I do not like at all was the ending of The Sopranos, when the screen goes black. Oh, uh, no, yeah. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know the scene? My wife has seen it. We talked about it. Now, if they, you know, when, when that was done... They said, well, it's up to the audience to decide, you know, is it just that's the end of the story or is it that it went blank because he got killed? I don't know. It's up to you to decide. I felt like that was a cop out. It just, you know, we've been with this series for whatever it was, seven, eight years, and that's how you're going to end it. It just didn't feel right to me. Now, there are other times where you can leave little things like this, uh, either intentionally or unintentionally ambiguous. And, it, and you leave it to the audience to decide. And I think that's good because that's thought provoking. That's different. Mm-hmm. That's not a cop out. So in some ways, just discussing it has, has knocked it up a level for me from what I was thinking on it. Mm-hmm. Because it's added a little depth to the movie. So I'm going to thank you for that. Uh, but then well, I'm that's why I'm here. You, that <laughs> is why you're here. That's exactly why you're here. And I'm going to ask you, John. Is this movie Jaws? And let me give the Jaws scale for anybody listening who's not familiar with it. And once again, I'll start off by saying this is not necessarily my review of the Jaws movies. If you want to know my review of the Jaws movies, we did that in episode two, and you could hear what I thought of each of them. But for the purposes of ranking these movies on an individual basis, we treat Jaws as an all-time classic. Very little flaws, just going to always be a great movie. Jaws 2... Solid movie, worthy of rewatching, but just not quite at that classic level. Jaws 3, entertaining, but nothing more. Jaws 4, a bad movie. Where do you see this one as falling? Um, for me, and this might be partly nostalgia, 
it might be partly that I have watched and rewatched this movie so many times and honestly wouldn't mind showing it to somebody else tomorrow. Um, watching it, realizing that some of the horror and some of the production is of its time and would be done differently today. So you sort of have to swallow that pill when you're watching it. I would put it at a Jaws 2 level. I think it's I think it's a solid f- horror film. It's germane to the genre. It's it's if you if you want to watch slasher films, you have to watch at least the first Nightmare on Elm Street film. Um, and it's fun. That's me. Okay. I'm a little. I'm actually a little surprised because I thought for you, this would be Jaws. Uh, but now taking it to me, and I think you're a bigger fan of the movie than I am, but just the same, I'm going to come in just about the same level. I'm going to put it at a, you know, a low-level Jaws 2, but I'm Jaws 2 just the same. I think it is one of the key horror movies of its time, along with Halloween, and I, I think while Halloween is probably the seminal movie of that era, I think this is probably number two because I would still put this ahead of Friday the 13th, which is the other one that goes with that grouping. Yeah, uh, it, Halloween and then Friday and then Nightmare was the order they came out. So um, I think Wes Craven took things up a level from Friday the 13th. I think so as well. And uh, I don't. I generally don't take points off for the lack of ability to do special effects. Uh, you know, the fact that the technology is advanced, I don't hold that against them because that's kind of retroactive. Uh, what I do hold against people on special effects is when they do things sloppily and, you know, they could have done it better. Mm-hmm. But I think for the purposes of this movie with the budget it had, I think they actually did fairly well with the special effects in it. I don't think it ever, any weaknesses in the effects, I don't think ever took me out of the movie, even watching it last night. And when you're seeing um, that first murder scene, with the tossing around the room, to me that's the most intense scene of the entire film. And it's still an intense murder scene. Yes. The effects I, on that scene hold up. The split screen they did with, with uh, Rod in the foreground shouting for her while mm-hmm. she's in another shot in an inverted room, and the split screen is seamless. Yeah, I agree. And I, I could easily see where for some people this would be at the Jaws level. Uh, again, for me, it's... It's lower, it's a high but... Jaws 2 for me. But I, 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 to be honest, there are enough flaws in the film that I, I can't say it's Jaws. But it's a really good movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's well done. It serves its purpose. It is thought-provoking, as we've discussed. It's got scary moments in it. It's, and it's created an iconic villain that is really you know, survived well beyond uh, the time if this movie wasn't at the quality that it is because I don't believe any of the sequels are the reason that he is as iconic as he is. I think this is the movie that did it. Um, so, I, I, you know, like I said, for me, it's more of a low-level Jaws 2, but it's Jaws 2 just the same. And uh, it's been a long time since I saw it, so I'm kind of glad that you got me to break it out again and watch it, and I'm glad you got me thinking about it because I th- think we had some interesting conversation about it. And I want to thank you for coming on and talking to me about it. I kind of want to rewatch all of them now, except for six, because <laughs> Freddy's Dead is a terrible, terrible film. Um, and I haven't seen New Nightmare more than the first time I saw it. So I need to I need to watch that one again. 
thanks again, John. Why don't you? Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure exactly what you what you got going right now. In you the, know, in the I, I haven't been doing a whole lot. It's been it's been a while. Um, I got behind in my edits because that always happens whenever summer ends and school gets back underway. But I really, really did enjoy the chance to come on here because I do enjoy talking to people about fun stuff, movies, comics, all sorts of good things. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I'll see you in two weeks with the next show. Mom, Dad, Martin died at school today. Ooh, I don't see what that has to do with groundskeeper Willie. Um, we didn't mention groundskeeper Willie, Mom. Kids, it's time we told you the true story and put your fears to rest. It's a story of murder and revenge from beyond the grave. It all started on the 13th hour of the 13th day of the 13th month. We were there to discuss the misprinted calendars the school had purchased. <laughs> oh, lousy smart weather. <laughs> Do not touch Willie. Good advice. Huh? Ah! Our next budget item, $12 for doorknob repair. Nay. We charge fire extinguishers. Uh, now this is a free service of the fire department. Nay. Willie, please, Mr. Van Houten has the floor. Uh, I, for one, would like to see the cafeteria menus in advance so parents can adjust their dinner menus accordingly. Uh, I don't like the idea of Millhouse having two spaghetti meals in one day. You'll pay for this with your children's blood! All right, how are you gonna get them? Skeleton power? I'll strike where you cannot protect them! In their dreams. Barsh, don't you realize what this means? The next time you fall asleep, we could die. Eh, welcome to my world.